0: Good afternoon, everybody. Welcome to this Reach Markets Meet the Funds Manager session. My name is Warwick Lace. I'm the Head of Investor Relations at Reach Markets, and I'll be hosting the session for you today. Uh, as many of you would already know, Reach Markets, we uh, we host a number of different investor webcasts uh, each week. Uh, we have the very popular Meet the CEO session, which we've uh, actually just rebranded uh, to the Insider. Uh, so the next Insider session will be next week, uh, Wednesday. Uh, There we have three ASX listed companies coming to present and uh, give you their stories, and we do that every alternate Wednesday. Uh, We also host two trading sessions each week, the next big trade and those that can do. Um, And then we have this webcast, which is the Meet the Fund Manager webcast, and we do this once a month, uh, the last Friday normally of every month. The common theme across all these webcasts is we give you, the audience, the opportunity to ask questions directly of our guests. And we feel this is an important and interactive way for investors to help up uh, make up their minds around companies that they might be considering investing in, and also just to learn and ultimately make decisions around their investment ideas. The Information contained in today's presentation is general nature and does not consider your personal circumstances. You need to consider for yourself whether it is appropriate for you. Today we are joined by Kenny Arnott, the Chief Investment Officer and founder of uh, R-NOT Capital. Kenny, welcome. Thanks very much for your time today. Uh, looking forward to the session.
1: Thank you. Thanks for having me on the, uh, on the show, Warren.
0: Not at all. Um, over 30 years, I guess, uh, Kerry, you, you can spend some time uh, going over your, uh, uh, over your history, but uh, you've really specialised in this asymmetric in, investing and uh, it's a fascinating, uh, fascinating strategy and something that I'm uh, looking forward to learning a little bit more about. Um, I think I've got a little bit of a handle on uh, the way you approach things, but it'd be great to sort of dig a bit deeper and find out exactly what, uh, what, how you think about things and uh, the, the way you approach your your investments. Uh, certainly, from uh, from the returns that I'm looking at and uh, seeing from your uh, from your investment fund, um, uh, delivering annualised returns of twenty two point one five percent over um, over a sustained period of time. Um, a, a great effort and. Um, Certainly uh, beating uh, benchmarks that most uh, you know, most investors would be targeting and looking to um, looking to to try and match, uh, but you're uh, you, you're well up on those over the last uh, seven years. Um, we might just kick off if I could ask you to give me um, give me a sort of a, a bit of a background on on how you came uh, into the industry, what uh, what drew you into um, investment management, and um, yeah, how you got started.
1: Yeah, sure, no worries. Thanks for that. All right, so thanks for joining us guys um, and again, just reiterating what Warwick said, and that is that um, this is uh, general advice only um, and that past performance stuff uh, and doesn't guarantee our future performance so I can assure you that we'll be uh, we'll be doing our best to to maintain the previous results um, yeah look, I guess just to uh, you know just to sort of talk about you know what is asymmetric investing the way we say it I think that um, you know if we kind of bring it back to the vernacular I, I like to be able to explain what we do to my 13 year old daughter and ultimately asymmetric investing is is pretty simple it's just about producing above average returns um, with below average drawdowns and, and to do that you know, and, and I think in, in this talk today, really what I'd like to share with everyone is that asymmetric investing is something we can all do, um, and I think it's something we all strive for. I just want to share with you how the path we've taken in, in trying to do it. So for us, uh, that, that is about finding good investments um, and not losing too much money or having too many drawdowns along the way of um, realising those good investments. That's what we call it. Where did it come from? Um, I went to Memphis um, in 1990 um, and I worked for a guy called Billy Donovan. Billy Donovan was Paul Tudor Jones' uncle and he was the guy who introduced me to the concept of asymmetric investing. That was actually commodity trading but the concept of asymmetric investing is is, is really can be applied to any asset class. It's, It's simply about managing Managing your downside risk while taking care of uh, your upside. So, how do we go about doing that? Well, we have a four-pronged approach. Um, we find asymmetric themes, and in that sense, we are a thematic investor. Um, and then we look to invest within the best stocks within those themes. Um, it is really important the third one, and I, I think you know we we want to cover off on this once we've, once we've delved into how our process works in the we're always keeping an eye on macro drivers. And as a thematic investor, it's impossible not to because although some of our themes are very specific, some of them are quite macro orientated. And so it's very natural for us to be just keeping an eye on what is going on um, with macro. And we think about that in, in both um, looking for risks and looking for opportunities. And ultimately we put all those positions together to generate an asymmetric return profile.
0: Right. If you, I mean, if you think of the, the obvious uh, risk in front, of, uh, in front of us at the moment that everybody uh, is worried about the u s elections, is, is that something that you, for example, would spend time on trying to trying to limit drawdowns attached to that, uh, th- that
1: specific risk? Yeah, look, I think, um, think look, seeing we've jumped into that question, let's just jump straight to what we look at um, when we talk about macro. Um, in our portfolio and uh, I don't know whether it's worth jumping to the slide or I just talked to it. But when we, when we talk about macro, we basically think there are, and, and right now this is what, you know, I think the question is, uh, slide 18 outlines this, but we, we, we think of it in a number of factors. First of all, we need to understand what the Fed are doing because they ultimately drive liquidity globally. Um, we more importantly now. We also need to consider fiscal flows, because uh, fiscal flows are important. Uh, I think I've given you a bum steer on that. My, uh, you just keep going forward. That's the one. Yep. We also then want to understand the economy and what's going on in the economy, and 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 how's the market being priced for those particular outcomes, and ultimately what investor flows are doing around that, and then fifthly what other important factors are on. So right now, absolutely, we've got an election in place and I think it's really, really important. The other thing that we've got going on is that we've got a vaccine coming soon. Um, We've got COVID rates spiking in the Northern Hemisphere. So, you know, we have an enormous amount of uncertainty at the moment. Generally, when we consider all these things, and the thing I would stress is that we um, we certainly don't think we can forecast where markets are going or what's gonna happen. But what we try and do is we try and focus our attention on what the market is listening to and how the market's positioned because that's really where you end up with a lot of risk in the market. And particularly, you know, in in, in a very longer time frame, if you have a look at when markets have fallen and, you know, I've invested through, um, I guess going back, the first one was the Asian crisis and then the tech fallout, um, then the 07 GFC and now more recently the COVID downturn. Through all of those, It's it's a lot of what's been important is the positioning going into it, and if I can just give you a bit of a case study um, as to how we keep an eye on macro with regard to COVID, because it's all fresh in our mind what happened in in March and April. One of the, uh, you know, in looking for interesting opportunities, one of the um, places I ended up in um, about April last year was looking at African swine fever. African swine fever um, is originated in Africa. It's, it's um, the, the boars are natural carriers of it, um, and it, it, it doesn't really cause a lot of problem in in Africa where it's. Um, been around for about 100 years. The the uh, fever made its way through Northern Europe and then ultimately into China. Um, a lot of the Chinese pig herds um, are actually in backyards, so they're not in commercial operations like they are in most Western countries. And that's made the transmission of African swine fever um, really prolific. And that's really important because the Chinese eat a lot of pork, more pork than any, um, any other country. So, I started looking at this, thinking that there would be some interesting winners and losers out of African swine fever, and it would probably have big implications globally for markets. Certainly, particularly in China. Um, we researched it for a couple of months. Uh, we attempted to kind of put some investments on around that position, and we really didn't get anywhere, and we abandoned it. And, and that can often happen as we're looking for these interesting themes. But I tell that story because. Um, When when we were sitting here in early January and COVID COVID was becoming an obvious problem in China alone, we were very focused on it. Um, And we took some swift action in our portfolio both to reduce illiquidity number of positions and actually put on some significant shorts at an index level late January. Now, as it turned out, um, we were a little bit early on that um, and and we got stopped out of those, those large short positions. I tell this story because this is where we watch macro and we think about themes in a very aligned basis. And it meant as we came into March, when, when COVID spread and became a global problem, not just a Chinese problem, we were well positioned for that. We had very large shorts in index. And we had very large shorts in financials. Um, the reason for the financials is if you're going to have a financial downturn, you, you know ultimately there's going to be some, some problems with financials. Now, um, that that, that enables to deliver um, uh, pretty good returns around seven percent on the downturn. And 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 rest assured, you know we, we had plenty of losses in our portfolio. We've got a large position in uranium, um, and and that suffered significant losses. We actually had some specific exposure to oil um, through Karoon, which was a really interesting opportunity. We had a big drawdown in that, so we certainly suffered losses on our longs. But, uh, you know, we, we were able to make, um, I think we did maybe 9 or 10% in our index shorts and around 7% in our financials, and that would well offset the, um, the long losses. Now, importantly, and, and, you know, to talk to this slide, the, the action that we saw the Fed take um, in you know, the peak of this pandemic was, had, had two very different attributes to what we saw them do during the GFC. The first thing was they operated really swiftly and the second thing was they operated with a magnitude of stimulus that was very big and so we made some pretty swift adjustments to the portfolio believing that with their actions the probability of a financial crisis was significantly reduced. we lifted, we basically lifted our hedges and then then had a terrific march. So Macro is really important to what we do um, it It really fits into the process and and it's very natural for us to keep an eye on it and Yes, right now, you know, I mean one of the interesting things you know, as an investor, we're all pricing um, we we all got to think about probable outcomes and unlikely outcomes you know I, I have no idea what's going to happen we we're all thinking in, in uncertain and, and and you know what what, what is the distribution and I, if you actually think about the U.S. election right now, I just had a look this morning. Um, you know, you can put on you, you put a bet on with Biden. I think he's paying about a dollar fifty-eight. So you you effectively got a low sixty percent that he gets in. Um, you, you put a bet on Biden winning. Um, you're going to get you know what it, you know you're going to get a sort of fifty, 50 mid fifty percent return on your money um, in a week, or you're going to lose it all. It's actually not a bad bet, um, and uh, now it's obviously difficult to uh, to deploy significant amount, amounts of capital to that, to that bet, but I, I explain that because that to me is an asymmetric investment opportunity. I mean, most of the polls have got Biden coming in around 80% probability, and you can put a bet on for 65. Now, I'm not sitting here with absolutely any knowledge as to whether he's going to win or not, but... Just using what is consensus information, that seems like a reasonable investment. To me, so aligning that with how we feel about the market right now, I think that whoever wins, um, left-wing governments always provide a lot of stimulus, and markets like stimulus. So the tax, you know, the the increased taxes that the Democrats are getting introduced are long dated, and and they're not, you know, they're not insignificant, but I don't think they're nearly. In nearly as important as the stimulus that's gonna be front-loaded right now. Um, and if, if Trump gets back in, we're gonna have stimulus. And in Australia, we've got plenty of stimulus everywhere. So, you know, I, I'm pretty constructive on markets, but if we get a, if we get a protracted outcome, um, uh, if we have problems um, with a higher percentage of postal votes being uh, eliminated, and, you know, we get some content, a real contested election, then
0: it's going to be tricky market for a little bit longer, I'd say. Yeah. Um, maybe just coming back to that uh, asymmetrical uh, investment style, is it, is it purely a portfolio construction approach, an idea? So do you think of the actual individual investment ideas in, in sort of conventional terms um, and then construct a portfolio to be asymmetrical? Am I thinking about that right? Or is there... A, uh, is there a little bit more to, to the investment ideas themselves?
1: Uh, no, look, it's, it's probably, I think what you're asking about is how does the process work? And it's probably worth going back, uh, if you come back, what are you, 21? Uh, sorry, my slide's from a different number. I think it's 14. Um, the workflow, of the Arnold investment process. Uh, ultimately, what we look for is to find themes, And then the second part of what we do is to, which is what you're alluding to, is to we, we try and find the best the best ideas within those themes. And then very importantly, that doesn't necessarily mean even at that point we enter. Um, we, we really won't enter until we feel that market factors, more trading principles and flows um, are going to be at the right level to give us an asymmetric entry. And if you just roll forward to the next slide, just from... I might just talk in a bit more detail. So how do we find themes? The you know, the one that I, I just spoke about with African swine fever, um, which then led us to COVID, was a very macro orientated theme and I would say that the typical opportunities lists are across the top. That's typically what we would call an early stage secular trend. You you can't be an asymmetric investor and in, invest in a in a late a late point in the cycle of a trend which has persisted for a long period of time because it becomes very difficult to ascertain some sort of valuation support which can give you comfort that you're going to be able to stay in that name. So you're always going to find us, you know, it doesn't mean we're a value investor. It means if we're looking for ideas, we're going to be early stage and we're probably going to lose money for a period of time, typically six months. The other place that we find ideas names where we can determine some asset backing that gives us some downside support. Um, names that are temporarily out of favour, and you know, I, I would I would put um, a specific stock. Uh, w- one of the themes we've got on is planet sustainability. It's all around the switch and the trend towards ESG. We we own some offshore names in that, but Cleanaway is a name we own locally, and Cleanaway's had um, and uh, Vic, the uh, CEOs had some particularly. Uh, particularly tough press um, in the last couple of months. Uh, we don't think that in any way changes the outlook, the long-term outlook for the business, but it's certainly done some real short-term price damage. And so we think that is temporarily out of favour opportunity for us to upsize that position. Supply and demand imbalances um, are, are one of our favourite hunting grounds for ideas. We we spend a lot of time, and, and you know, I could go back, uh, to the early 2000s, when iron ore um, looked like it was going to switch to a supply and demand imbalance. Lithium a few years ago was another one, and the current one where we've got a lot of exposure is uranium. And and if we talk about, you know, the best way to summarize what is it that we go looking for in themes, um, it's it's on the left hand side. Go where the money is not, but the money will go. Um, we, we're not. We don't want to be. Where there is really crowded space, because we think they're they're at risk of large drawdowns. If you then just go to the next slide, um, so we identify a theme. How do we you know how do we find what we want to own? Well, we want to own we want to own a good business um, with reasonably stable earnings, a capital structure which hasn't um, had a massive increase in share count, and not too much debt, run by really good people. That's um, you know, this this part of our process, I would say, is reasonably common to a lot of investors. The, the yeah. part where we're different is we don't go looking for good companies until we've decided that we're in a theme that we want to own. And then if you go to the next slide, and this is this is really important in delivering asymmetric returns. And, you know, for any, any of us out there that, that want to deliver asymmetric returns, I, I just share with you that we haven't been able to find a way to do it without taking account of this part of the strategy. And what what we do here is we're going to try and find companies that are going to grow their earnings for a long period of time and the share price will typically follow that, that trajectory from bottom left to top right. But you know, particularly and plain in away is a specific example of this, that you know the the, the the listed share market can get a little bit bipolar from time to time. And, and, and sometimes they fall you know, overly in love with names and sometimes they, they really fall out of love with names. And, and that provides a, a trajectory of volatility of the underlying share price, which will often be significantly larger than the underlying earnings path. And so what we do is we attempt to both manage our drawdowns, first, that's first and foremost, and then secondly, actually take advantage of when companies have a little bit too much love in the market. And and it's pretty easy to get a sense of what positioning we're going to have. If the name um, has been sold off recently and we like it, then most likely we're going to have an outsized position. And similarly, if it's run ahead of itself, then most likely we're going to de-weight that. And so the, the name turnover in the portfolio is very low. You know, names will stay in the portfolio for years. But the weighting of those, you know, we, we tend to, we like to have a 5% position in names we have conviction in and sometimes we take that up to 10. But if they run ahead of themselves, then we may actually reduce that down to zero. So to answer your question, it's, um, I think the core part of what we do is around identifying themes. We then need to find good companies. Trading around those positions is probably not necessarily um, the key way we deliver alpha but it is, it is one of the key ways that we limit drawdowns. And it might just be worth slipping back to slide 13 just to have a little bit of a look at our return profile. We've, we've delivered pretty good returns relative to the market. The, the thing I would stress is we're not generally running 100% net long. We're typically running with some longs and some shorts, and invariably we, we're generally only running on average 50 to 70% net long and, and we have spent times running net short um, and we have spent times running longer than that. But if you look if you look down there and, and the MISCI and the ASX are pretty similar returns, we've just provided the MISCI metrics, this is uh, the MISCI world. You can see that when it has an up month, it tends to, or it has an average of 2.73 and in those equivalent up months, we only deliver 1.4. So we struggle to keep up with the market when the market is in typically a grinding bull market because we just don't have full market beta exposure. But the line below that is, is really what I would say is, is our differentiator um, and one of our competitive advantages. And that is when the MISCI has a down month, on average, it falls 3.27. And in those equivalent months, on average, we deliver positive 4.3. Now, the example that I just gave you where we trade around our positions is a core way in which we eliminate drawdowns. The other way in which we eliminate drawdowns is when we have a COVID situation, as I explained earlier, we put on a lot of index shorts and we do it very swiftly to, to help protect those drawdowns down the bottom, you can see the correlations um, of our of our returns to other index and we we certainly didn't we didn't set out to create a portfolio which was uncorrelated but because we 're a thematic investor and and you know the themes we 're looking at at the moment are uranium gold, Hong Kong, connecting the future um, and and connecting on the long side on the short side we 've got financial shenanigans. Um, we've got COVID, what we call COVID or pandemic winners, um, which are priced at some, some sort of valuation level of as though we're never gonna reopen. And if you just think about those themes, they're, they're a fairly eclectic um, group of themes and that by definition is gonna mean it, it's unlikely that we're gonna be correlated and that's exactly where we've ended up. We're basically uncorrelated with equity bonds, gold, commodities, and, and, and actually, it's not on the slide, but we're we're uncorrelated with every other hedge fund as well.
0: Right. We'll come to shorts um, in a little bit, and I think it'd uh, be interesting to um, to hear from you where where you've got uh, got some shorts on. Um, just a question in from uh, more of a comment really from Ishmael, saying, "Will the will the slides be available?" And uh, it would be great to spend some more time uh, studying up on them. But uh, yes, Ishmael, uh, they will be available. And uh, might just uh kenny talk to uh talk to a point that ishmael's making there it it seems like a strategy where uh you know the diy investor would uh would probably struggle with i would i would say is is, is that a fair is that a fair comment it's it's not uh just the, the high frequency not that i'm saying you're a high frequency trader but the the trading around a position while whilst in the portfolio is probably um a more nuanced uh skill than um than just putting a bet
1: on and coming on and off? Look, I think um, explaining... I'm very evangelical about asymmetric investing. I actually think, you know, we we turn on CNBC in the morning and, and we hear the market, you know, we, we hear the you know the Dow's down 4% and they say it's been a volatile night. Now, the definition of volatility is ver- is symmetrical variation around the mean, and when the Dow's down 4 four percent that is not a volatile night that that is that is the market has been completely towed up on the downside and the reason i say that is you know we we delivered during during the pandemic in march and april we delivered about seven percent on the downside in march and we delivered about seven percent on on the up on the upturn in, in april and you know i, I don't recall having a, many of my investors ringing up i mean that is outsized volatility and if people are concerned about volatility, well then we should have had a lot of complaints. But needless to say, nobody cares about upside volatility. All we really care about is losing money, you know, which is downside volatility. And and actually on this slide here, you know, for those that are interested, that Sortino ratio is a is a measure of downside volatility. So asymmetric investing is really simple to understand um, and, and it's something that we all want. I mean if you if you just slip back one slide um, there, you know, these are our annual returns over a really long period of time. And, and if, we, if we've if we been able to deliver what what I aim for, then ultimately what you should end up with is one big call option like Profile, and that's exactly what you get. You know, we don't always make money. You have to, um, and, and if you want to be an asymmetric investor, you have to be prepared to spend periods of time not making money because, if there aren't asymmetric opportunities around, you can't take risk, and if you don't take risk, you're not going to make money. So, what I would say, coming back to your point, is that unfortunately, the way that we deliver the returns, this is this is not a part-time job. I mean, you know, I I basically am a devoted, um, I'm a devoted market investor. Um, our investment team is. Is devoted as well, and you know every day we need to focus what is going on in the financial markets, as well as spending every day looking for very long-term opportunities. And so, you know, the the the, the four-stage process that I spoke about, um, which is on slide 14, it's a very time-consuming exercise, and so it's. I think it's easy to understand but it it, it it would be challenging to take on an asymmetric investing approach as a, as a DYI investor the way that we do it. There may be other ways to do it but our approach is is definitely a full-time job.
0: All right. Um, maybe it's time to quickly cover up some of those uh, shorts. I'm not sure if you've got a slide on them, Kenny. It's... Uh, what you're shorting at the moment and uh, maybe just talk through a few case studies, uh, sort of previous shorts that have um, worked or not.
1: Yeah, so I think um, might, it just might be worth giving a bit of context of, of shorts in general um, and, and particularly given the current environment. Um, you know, Ray, Ray Dalio wrote a piece recently talking about investing in China and 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 he made the comment that you know it's in, it's important not to get your uh ethical and political biases in the way of a good investing decision um you know we we certainly have a mantra internally that you know we, we, it, it's our job to invest according to the current landscape which ultimately is is laid out by the fed first and foremost by the fed and then by other key central banks, um, you know, in, in Eurozone and Japan, and then and then every other central banks including the RBA, and then that is that is then aligned with with political um, fiscal policy globally as well. And and really to say that in to put that in layman's terms, it's our job here to play the game, not to be the umpire, and that's very critical when it comes to thinking about shorting because. If I go back, uh, you know, if I go back 10 or 15 years, interest rates were five or six percent. And when we were shorting, um, we're we, we short stock, we're long cash, we get a rebate of five percent, we have to pay a borrow 80 basis points. But ultimately, on an annualized basis, we're probably earning about four um, percent to run those shorts. Now, fast forward to where we are today, we've got interest rates not much above zero. We're still paying. Borrow rate. So, the first thing is that the policy that's been implemented globally, led by the Fed, has changed the landscape um, for shorting. That's the first thing. Second thing that's happened is there is becoming ever increasing intervention um, beyond bond markets um, by both the Fed and other central banks. And you know, one specific example of this—don't uh, quote me exactly—but uh, during during the pandemic, in, you know, I think in May, they took a, about a 28% stake in a U.S. trucking company. That's an equity stake, a $700 million position that the Federal Reserve has taken in a U.S. trucking company, uh, which was at risk of going bankrupt and was deemed to be uh, an important contractor to the defense. And that was the reason why they felt it necessary to take that stake. So. You know, without making a judgment call about you know what what sort of where where that leads to um, from a you know from an ethical point of view and and where that leads to in general, you know that 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 is a a really really important um, I guess statement about you know what's going on in the world and it means that one of our key areas where we like to play and if you go to slide uh, twenty two. Um, that just gives you an idea of our current themes at the moment. And one on the right, in short, is accounting shenanigans. Now, accounting shenanigans um, are not about companies necessarily doing anything illegal. It, it, it might just be, you know, some companies just really, really push um, what they're doing um, w- within their accounts. And 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 historically, that's been very good hunting ground for us um, to put on a number of shorts and, and really wait for things to unfold. Um, that's a bit challenging at the moment, I think. And I would say that uh, we we have been holding back on, on that positioning. Um, but it is an area which is always around. And given the current, you know, given the current state where if anything there's there's a lot more leniency I think what's going to happen is we're going to find a massive backlog of opportunities. We're certainly seeing them building. I mean, I was just I was reading a report last night at a company, um, you know, whose CFO has resigned. Um, they have a qualified report from their auditor. Uh, they look like they look like they're about to be investigated by the SEC. The company themselves um, made a release in their in their quarterly statements saying that they've got problems um, with the way they're accounting for revenue. They're an unprofitable business. And, you know, it, it, I'm fairly sure that that company is gonna go uh, south a long way. But, you know, it hasn't, you know, in the last six months, it's, it's stood the test of time pretty well because at the moment, we're all, we're all very focused on companies which um, are delivering high revenue growth and no one's really that focused on on, uh, you know, actually where the bottom line is. The other thing is that, you know, ASIC have come out, they've um, provided a lot of relief in companies' um, reporting requirements, specifically here in Australia, and the regulators globally are doing the same thing. They've forced the banks to provide relief to companies. And so I think there's, you know, that's then led to an enormous amount of uncertainty from sell-side analysts who are actually unable to, Well, first of all, the companies in many cases have removed guidance um, and that doesn't necessarily mean that those forward results are going to be bad. In many cases, we see companies have removed guidance and actually there could be really, really good results. But we've just got, just to me, an amazing lack of information which is going to present some tremendous opportunities. uh, But we don't have a, to, to come back and answer your question specifically, we don't have an enormous amount on at the moment because i I think it's just a little bit early i I think as our regulators start requiring a bit more scrutiny in the accounts in uh, next year in twenty one I think there'll be some terrific opportunities there 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 are some opportunities it's not specifically mentioned on this slide, but we're we're running a pair opportunity where we've got some we've got some companies which look very, very interesting to us as though they're priced as though we're never going to reopen and we were talking before we've gone live this morning on this very situation The you know, the Sydney yeah. CBD has, has, has been a ghost town until recently and now people are coming back to the offices um, and, and, and on the other side of that we've got some some really, really interesting businesses uh, which are now being priced as though we're never going to come out of lockdown. So I think that's going to present some interesting opportunities um, on the short side but you know there's been years in the past where I think I could specifically talk to exposure within the book that uh you know was enormously short and and in in some instances we've spent years um and months being you know net fifty percent short. We just don't see those opportunities right here today
0: right what about the the school of thought that um says with all the with all the stimulus on offer from from central banks and governments and everybody falling over themselves to to help, you know, anybody and every every company and every individual out in, in this time, that there's going to be a just a cliff somewhere in, in the future where that stimulus has got to stop? Is that something that you're um, particularly worried about?
1: Uh, look, I, I come back to my point um, that I have no idea where the markets are going, and I don't think anyone else does, and what I see at the moment is that uh, the amount of stimulus that's going into the economy in, in rough arithmetic looks more than what we need for most sectors. Some sectors, obviously travel, have been completely decimated. Um, actually, just as an aside, if you, if you have a look at, at where the market cap and enterprise values are for some of these companies, Adjusted for capital raisings, then some of these companies are trading at levels that are really, um, you know, pricing in no fall. So there's, you know, it's just another example as an aside where I think we, and this happened after the GFC with banks, right? We kind of failed to have a look at, you know, the the post capital raising, um, post capital raising share price. But um, so the short answer is I don't know. I have no idea. Um, but what what I can say is the rate of change right now is I see no dialing back of stimulus. I just see you know we've we 've got the Republicans talking about one and a half billion and knocking back the Democrats who wanted four. If Biden gets in um, if the polls are right you know who knows we 've got four four to five trillion coming down yep. you know coming down the pipeline the rBA 's talking about cutting rates the the uh, you know the there, there doesn't seem to be any cut off here, although you know, incrementally it is cutting off. So look, what I would say is that to me is a, a long dated amber flag, which the market is not gonna pay attention to right now. Um, you know, the, the, the experience from Japan is you just kick it down the road. Um, that'll probably be our children's problem, I guess. For the moment, they're just gonna keep providing more stimulus.
0: All right. On the long side, you mentioned uh, uranium a little while ago. Do you want to uh, quickly uh, tackle that one and any other sort of long positions that you
1: feel worth, uh, worth going over now? Yeah, sure. If you just um, jump to the next slide, it's got a few bullet points on uranium. Um, uranium is one of these, uh, so, you know, I'm constantly hunting around looking for supply and demand imbalances. Uh, I began my career trading cotton, um, working for a cotton merchant, and... Um, you know it was asymmetric investing for me first originated out of commodity trading I wouldn't say in any way we have a bent to it but it, if you're going to be involved in uh, in markets and in an Australian market you're going to probably end up having a look at this so the, the chart on the bottom right is what intrigued me after Fukushima we ended up with a situation where the market's been in oversupply for a number of years and if you just think about intuitively what happens when a commodity market goes in, into, I supplies, you have a whole number of producers um, which ultimately end up operating um, or selling, um, have an operating cost well above where they're selling, so they go out of business or they go into care and maintenance and you have a whole lot of buyers, in this case um, utilities purchasing uranium who get very comfortable buying very cheaply. The other thing that happens in um, uranium, which of course is is very, very different to say natural gas is natural gas is a, a very responsive price to where the current demand is, and that's particularly because natural gas is used um, in this day and age alongside solar to 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 manage the peaks which, um, which solar can't provide. And so in other words, the price is very responsive, unlike that uranium, it, it can often take um, in the order of three years from actually what is being mined to actually being consumed, and so there's a real lag. What what we have seen, what we've all experienced in markets, is when you when you get an inflection point and commodities move from oversupply to undersupply, the the associated price move with that is generally very disorderly. Um, and <laughs> disorderly is probably the wrong word. It actually it actually moves. Extremely in one direction. So this, this is an area where we like, you know, we like hunting around for ideas. Um, I got to confess that I, I, I said earlier, I reckon we generally need to be about six months early on our themes. That gives us plenty of time to research them and figure out what names we want to own and lose a bit, lose a little bit of money while we're doing it. Um, we, we have been invested in uranium for a couple of years, and, and we've only been right this year. So. um, I I just want to wave the white flag that it's probably been my earliest call um, uh, where where we've had to, uh, uh, our investors and myself have had to endure um, some patience um, and some financial pain, uh, but we've certainly seen that shift now where the market is is moving. And if you look on the right, I just want to run through a couple of factors that are important in that. The first one um, is that and I want to make a general comment on China. I mean, China growth is enormous, and China is very, very important in the long-dated deficit that you see on that bottom right-hand chart. Um, China has stated their long-term policy on how much uh, electricity generation they want to come from nuclear power, and you can translate that into how much uranium they're going to need to buy. Now. One of the things which is is just so wonderful um, and simple about investing alongside Chinese themes is that because of the way the country operates, uh, which ultimately, you know, we we see China as just one large mega corporation uh, which has the ability to set 100-year policy, is that when they set policy for 30 years, they generally don't change it. And if they are going to change it, you're probably going to get about three to five years warning now that's very different to investing in Australia or the US where you know our election cycle means that investing beyond a five-year horizon can be challenging because you you may have new fiscal policy implemented so we love we love investing alongside Chinese themes it just seems to really removes a lot of risks so so China's going to provide the long-term growth but they're not going to move the uranium price right now Europe, which is the second bullet point, is going to provide um, some support. Uh, you know, there's some there's some really interesting shifts going on with ESG, uh, where where the world is now discovering we just cannot produce enough base load power through wind and solar. It's it's just physically impossible. It's environmentally impossible to do it. And so, nuclear um, actually is. is is shifting into an ESG friendly. You know, one of the other things I'd say about this, this shift is that one of the things that's not been taken into account with solar is that you, your 250-acre solar farm in, in, uh, you know, in the desert in 20 years is all gonna have to be recycled. And when you actually take account for that, solar is not necessarily as green as would initially think. One of the interesting things about uranium is every piece of waste, that has ever been produced through nuclear power is contained and stored effectively. Every other form of power generation reduce, produces waste, which is released into the atmosphere and ultimately affects our climate. Um, the total amount of waste which has been produced uh, by nuclear power generation is one football field, two metres deep, and it's all stored under you know very very safe conditions. So. You know, it, it, I know it's a concern of all of us as consumers, but again, this is a shift that's very important. Then at the very pointy end, um, there's been some significant policy changes in the US. We've had Section 232 notice going on for a while back, and more recently we have the Russian suspension agreement, which sets a cap on how much, uh, how much Russian uh, uranium can be sold into the US. And, and, and those things have been resolved very recently. The Russian suspension agreement only this month, and that means that the US utilities now are in a position where they have policy certainty and they can actually go forward and start buying. And so we've seen that already um, with a lot of, uh, the uranium market's a pretty quirky market, the way it operates, but the utilities do what's called a request for proposal. Um, They go out and and they do that in spot, which is one year forward, or they do it in the midterm, three year forward, or they do it in long term, out to maybe seven or 10 year forward. And, And we're seeing, RFPs go out by the utilities now, so it's certainly a really interesting time to own uranium. Um, you know, I, I've been have been a long standing bull, so you know you probably want to remove a bit of behavioural bias from me and go and have a cold shower. But I think we're at the pointy end of, of where we're really going to see some some interesting uh, developments, um, and, and and as and we've got twenty two percent of the portfolio in that theme, 22. so we've.
0: I was about to ask that.
1: And yeah,
0: well how's how's that exposure exposure achieved? Is it is it um is it only uranium producers, or are there other sort of ways to get exposure to the uranium story?
1: Look, we've taken a basket approach. Generally, when we invest in themes, we run it. We like to have about ten names in a theme for a bit of diversity, so we don't um, you know we don't suffer you know particular. Idiosyncratic risk of one of those producers having a mine shaft flooding or something, um, some unforeseen event. Um, we've, we've really taken a two pronged approach to our uranium exposure. The name on the right, Uranium Participation Corp, simply holds uranium. It's a proxy, uh, physical proxy for owning uranium. And, and I mentioned that we like to trade around our positions. The chart on the top right just gives you a, a historical look at the premium and discount to NAV, and in the same way that you know, some Australian licks trade at premiums or discounts. Um, uranium participation trades at a premium or discount. And when it gets to a significant discount, the company actually undertakes a buyback and sells its physical stock to uh, to attempt to eliminate that. Um, and so we do the same thing. And when it when it moves to a significant discount, we increase our weighting. And then as its as it's, uh, discounts narrowed closer to zero, we we, we reduce the weight. So that that's the first one. We've got significant exposure um, to uranium proxies and a couple of large cap producers, Cameco in Canada. And then at the other end of the curve, you know, ultimately a, a producer which is on care and maintenance, which is like Lotus, um, you know, can be seen of a reserve. You know, it's no different to a store of uranium. It's just a store of uranium below ground. But with reserves, um, um, with reserves and an ability to restart quickly. We've we've got significant exposure to your Lotus, which is more like a call option. That that will give us if we write on our thesis, uranium participation corps kind of going to give us a one for one payoff as uranium goes up. Whereas a name like Lotus is likely to give us a a two or three to one payoff as the uranium price goes up.
0: Right. Uh, last question on uranium: Where's the price going to be in uh, six or twelve months' time?
1: I reckon. I reckon in six or twelve months, it's currently at thirty thirty dollars. It's a really weird market because we all reference the spot market, but most of the contracting is done on the forward market. The forward market at the moment operates on a on a cost and carry pricing, so you can you can translate spot out to close thirty seven dollars, probably about three years forward. But I'll just reference the spot price. I'd say that. Um, in six to twelve months, we're going to we're going to see a fifty handle on the uranium price. Right.
0: Well, Okay. We probably have time for uh, one more uh, one more uh, case study or a thematic. Is there one you've sort of Yeah. You know, look, let's
1: to? yeah. Let's go to um, Hong Kong, which is a couple of slides down. Uh, sorry, it's a few slides down, isn't it? Twenty eight. Yeah. Oh, there you go. You're on it. Um, so Hong Kong's an interesting theme because um, if I just come back to uranium, uranium certainly has a lot of the uranium market. Anyone involved in the uranium market, because of the nature of, of uranium being able to use for uh, for um, defence purposes and, and you know produce um, bomb grade enrichment, it, it ultimately everyone involved in uranium is somewhat government regulated. You're either dealing with government. Regulated bodies, or you're, or you dealing, or are dealing with state-owned enterprises, you're dealing with government bodies, um, and so to study the uranium market, you know, one of the things I mentioned was this: we, we you know, we certainly have to pay attention to what's going on in the political landscape, um, and that then allows us to follow what's going on in the macro world um, in political tensions between Russia and China, and and uh, sorry, Russia, China, US, China, US, Russia. The Hong Kong theme is. Uh, similar to different um, in the sense that, you know, one of the key things that's going on with Hong Kong is we kind of call it the return to Hong Kong, and, and as tensions are brewed um, between China and US, uh, there are a whole lot of listed Chinese companies which are not providing um, like-for-like disclosure with a lot of US companies. They've been given dispensation so they don't have to, and the SEC um, is going to implement changes. that the, the you know, what China has done around the human rights issue in Hong Kong, again, notwithstanding that, you know, that that certainly appears to be a fairly oppressive regime that they've put in place. Let's just remind ourselves that we're here to look for investment opportunities. We're not here to, um, you know, to, to have, an, uh, a, you know, a view of what's going on there. And so I think ultimately we're going to see a real changing landscape in Hong Kong. We're seeing a lot of Western countries leave. There's, there's a lot of fear within within companies like you know Facebook and, and Google, which are headquartered um, in in Hong Kong, that because of the change in laws, you may find a Western employee actually falls under this new um, new law um, in Hong Kong. So I think we're going to see a real changing landscape of actually who what companies are based there. But one thing is very clear: is China is going to make Hong Kong their financial showpiece. They, you know, they're not going to make it Shanghai. And so that becomes really, really important because it means the opportunities are enormous. Um, If we bring that specifically down to Hong Kong Stock Exchange, you know, you've got a a company which is trading trading on a multiple up around 37, but it's going to deliver you 15, 20% growth into the future. Uh, You've got a lot of flows coming back to Hong Kong, both with um, those ADRs. You've got MISCI changes, which will promote more flows. Uh, We've got southbound flows where China is using Hong Kong to give um, all of us who are foreign investors to China better access. We've got a bond market that's opening up. <clears throat> this is the opposite to what's going on with um, Chicago Board of trade, where because treasuries is just it's a much smaller market and, and, and same with the ASX through the SFE, we've got you know lower corp, uh, sovereign bonds trading. Well, China's in the opposite space where we're seeing in- increased volume. So this is just an underlying trend, which we think will persist for years. Um, It's a theme that we really like. We don't currently have, we only have, sorry there, that was my fault, I just had a, there we go, I'm not sure where you lost me, but uh, yeah, we're, uh, you know, so we've we've got a variable position in in, um, and, you know, we we will upweight that and downweight that um, as, you know, as as opportunities
0: arise yeah very interesting market hong kong and uh property certainly um i know pr- one of the most expensive places on the um, on the planet for uh for, for property so interesting to see what happens with uh, with that market a lot of people are very uh <laughs> very leveraged and baked into the hong kong property market
1: um yeah yeah very interesting to see how
0: it plays out yeah Kenny, thank you very, very much for your for your time today. It's been fascinating. Uh, I've uh, I've learned a bit about uh, asymmetric investing, and i um, keen to learn a bit more. Actually, so I'll uh, I'll spend some time with uh, along with uh, Ishmael, I think it was, uh, paging through uh, some of these slides. Um, I might just get through to to your conclusion slide with some contact details on the end. Um, was there a conclusion uh, slide?
1: I think we oh, we do have them on there. Yeah. And look if That's anyone uh, if anyone has any uh, you know further questions, then um, perhaps through through uh, yes. i guess your email they can reach out to us
0: i'll just do a shout out right now to to everyone who's on the call. Thanks very much for your time. If you have any more questions, feel free to leave them in the survey uh, after the uh, after the call we'll get those through to Kenny and uh, get them answered for you. Um, we really enjoy putting these on, so give us a uh, give us a few tips if you've got something that uh, would help improve the session for you. Uh, Again, if you'd like to be booked into next week's CEO session, type in CEO into the chat box and uh, Kenny spends a bit of time on Uranium today. We have a Uranium company currently uh, busy with an SPP and uh, a follow-on placement uh, uh, after that. So type in MEY for Mommy Echo Yellow, MEY, into the box if you'd like more information about Morenica Energy, which is a Uranium Explorer uh, ASX listed. Kenny, uh, thanks again. Perhaps just a, a final
1: word from your side. Yeah, thanks very much, guys. Thanks for uh, having me on. And, um, you know, it's, uh, it's, it's, it's certainly interesting times to, to be investing. So if anyone, anyone has any uh, follow-up on this, please reach out. No worries. Thanks for your time, guys. Thank you, Kenny. Uh, And with that, it's uh, all from us.
0: Enjoy the rest of your Friday.